0: Better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
1: Well, hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January the 10th, 2022. This is episode 3012 of the Survival Podcast. Most of this episode was done via live stream across a bunch of different platforms. YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Odyssey, Float, and anybody else that will let me uh, stream either directly or through RMTP. I have been doing that lately. I've upgraded my StreamYard account. I can be on up to eight platforms simultaneously, and I do my best with that. Uh, If you guys want to catch the live stream versions of this, the way to do that, the best way to do that uh, is to get on the Telegram channel, the Survival Podcast Telegram channel, uh, if you have the Telegram app installed, I always, every day when I'm going to live stream, at least an hour before, in most instances, say, hey, this is what I'm going to be talking about today, and here's some links. So that's just one way to make sure you get a heads up. Even if you don't use YouTube, which I would prefer not to, but it's the one that works the best and the most people watch right now, so that's why I'm still using it. Um, even if you don't use YouTube, the beauty of YouTube is if you get one of my notices, sometimes a day in advance, hey, I'm going to be doing this, you can go to YouTube, and you can click Reminder, and it'll tell you, and then you can go watch me on the platform of your choice, but you'll get that reminder as well. Uh, We've got a bunch of stuff to talk about today, but I covered it in the live stream as an intro, so I won't go deep into it today. Just a really diverse array of topics today. And in that diverse array of topics, we have, as much as possible, some questions came up, avoided the COVIDs and uh, crypto. I don't want this to become the crypto or COVID show, so I'm going to try to have some days where we don't talk about it at all, even with a multi-topic uh, day. Before we get into this, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is a new sponsor. You don't hear those words come out of my mouth very often. I did say that we would be turning some sponsors over uh, at this point. Uh, some because I don't feel that they're just involved with the community at all, and a couple because I feel like, given what they sell, I've done as much as I can for them at this point, and it's time to maybe just bring in some fresh sponsors. But you have heard of this company before they do a discount for the MSB. They've been working with us quite a bit this year, Start9 Embassy Servers. If you want to take back control of your life, I really recommend that you get over to Start9.com and pick up one of the embassy servers, learn more about it, how to use it, and what it can do for you by providing you the ultimate in security and privacy, being able to run your own Start9 server. It's not as hard as it sounds, and I'm working with the folks over at Start9. They're going to be providing us some segments a couple times a month saying, hey, here's a thing you can install on your server, here's what it does, and here's why you'd want it. So... With Start9, we're having a sponsor that wants to come on board to help educate you, not just to sell to you. And that's what I'm looking for is more involvement from my sponsors in helping to develop the community and bringing value beyond the product itself. And Start9 is a great place for that to happen. Matt over there is a great guy. Uh, I've, I've really enjoyed. Uh, I've been learning myself as we go, uh, building up my own Start9 server. It's just sitting right here behind me on my desk. Uh, it, is a, it was very easy to install. It takes a little bit more with configuration, but I'm learning as I go and it's definitely worth it. Check it out at Start9.com. Next up today, how about investing smartly? You can do that by following the advice of investment manager John Pugliano. Not only is he a valued member of this community, having been part of this community since 2012, uh, not only is he an incredible friend and a member of the expert council, he is a very astute man when it comes to wealth development and management. And you can learn all about his philosophy on his podcast called the Wealthsteading podcast that you can find at Wealthsteading.com. You definitely should be listening to John uh, in the type of age that we're in. There's a lot of stuff going on right now that John was at the forefront of saying was going to come like automation quite a few years ago. He wrote a book called The Robots Are Coming. Yeah, I, I think he could write a second book now called The Robots Are Here, and uh, it won't be that long before maybe the robots are managing the robots. Uh, and, and There's a lot of automation going on. There's a lot that, that has to do with investing into the future as well. Again, you can learn more at wealthsteading.com. With that, let's go ahead and uh, drop into the live stream here, and uh, got a great array of topics for you today. Uh, today we've got a bunch of stuff that we're going to be covering, a uh, wide variety of topics. And for those of you in the live stream, you'll be able to ask questions and make comments uh, toward the end of everything. Let me give you a quick overview of what we're going to be covering today. One, I'll uh, we'll talk real, real, real brief about Facebook. Uh, i not going to bash them or anything. it 's just going to make an observation after two years of not really using Facebook uh, for much of anything other than shit posting trying to get banned, and uh, I live stream there. And if you're seeing me live stream on Facebook right now and you want to actually communicate with me on social media, you're going to have to do it somewhere other than Facebook, just saying. Um, we're going to talk about calculating the start date of your plants today. You can see the uh, thumbnail uh, for today's episode, Gollum, and uh, we want to start the seeds. We know we mustn't, but we want to. We're going to talk about figuring out when it is the right time to do that. Um, we're going to talk about how parents were pulling kids out of school, but now it's really teachers that might be the next exodus from the government school system, and uh, how it's probably not as bad as the uh, sensationalism the author in the article I want to point out brings up. However, we are going to talk about how he's actually like diluted and smart at the same time. There's some valid points in this guy's article about this, um, but it's definitely um, a little bit of clutching of the pearls, I think, and a little bit of missing of the mark. We're going to talk about what to do if your business relies on certain things that uh, are in short supply and you can't get them. And now you've got this business and it's running and it's successful, but yet you can't get certain things. Um, we're going to talk about... Um, moving to a town that it's on its way to becoming a ghost town it's a town of very small number of population and the population's dwindling in the middle kind of like out in the middle of you know nowhere is there any real dangers in doing something like that I actually think there are so we're going to talk about that we're going to talk about employees, leaving big tech, and one employee in particular, I'll pull up the actual email over here on the other machine, uh, that penned, penned a Dear John letter basically to his employer, very, very big tech employer, not one of the social media giants, but yeah. And we're going to talk about how we can solve the food shortages that we keep hearing about coming more and more, getting worse and worse, and we're going to start with the truth, there's no food shortages. I didn't say, it's not a Baghdad Bob thing, you know. There are no Americans in Iraq. No, I don't mean it that way. I don't mean that there's no shortages, uh, in the, in the supply lines right now. I don't mean that they might not get worse. I don't mean that you might not go to the store and a lot of things you want might not be there. I don't mean that. I mean, there's no shortage of food. There's no shortage of cows. There might be a shortage of steaks, but there's no shortage of cows. There might be a shortage of bacon. There's no shortage of pigs. There might be a shortage of bread. There's no shortage of wheat we'll talk about that and after that I'll be taking your questions and comments in the live stream and I would ask when you do drop questions and comments into the uh, comment section for me and I can see you if you do that on the book of faces and I can see you if you do that on YouTube Uh, that's not that I'm giving either of those preference over the other places I stream to it's just the one that works with StreamYard where I can actually communicate back and forth in real time with you guys without using other screens and things like that so yeah, let's let's start out with. Well, I, I I forgot to tell you something. Do you notice what's missing today? We're, there's nothing about the COVIDs and there's nothing about cryptocurrency. We're going to just skip those for a day. Uh, I don't think that needs to be in every show, and I made a conscious effort to make sure that those things were not in there today. Right, so I so want to start start off with something. Just just an observation. So recently, I did begin putting these live streams on Facebook again. And I used to feel that I got an awful lot out of Facebook, a lot of interaction with my audience. And I always told people that were in business that said they didn't want to do social media, you're like a person in the, the turn of the last century, like the 1900s, you know, going from the into the 1900s, that says, you know what, we don't need a phone for our business. Like if, you're, if your customers want to communicate with you in a medium, you use that medium. And, and I put a lot into Facebook and, and Twitter and other mainstream, I guess you want to call them social media platforms for a long time. And I, I do believe that they did help grow my business over time and they did increase my interaction with my audience and that was good. But when they started censoring like crazy, I decided there was real no, really no point to that. And what really bothered me was when they started threatening to get rid of groups I had built. That was, that was the big thing. We had private groups. Nobody had to see it unless they wanted to. And, and that was, like, when I blew up and said I'm done. And that was almost two years ago. But all that being said, I often wonder, like, am I missing anything by not being on Facebook? And I'm going to take out the interaction with you guys because I get plenty of that, right? I, have, I don't have enough time in the day to do as much interaction as I would like to do with you guys. And if you want to interact with me, there's MeWe, there's, there's, there's Float, um, there's Gap. You know Those three, you can probably interact with I me. Mean, you're you're going to be better off using MeWe or Float because I don't spend that much time on Gab. I pretty much dump stuff there, and, and it's there because it's a platform people can reach me on. So that interaction is still there. I, I went on there today, and I scrolled for about five minutes. Now, I did it in Firefox with Facebook container installed so that they can't infiltrate all my shit and track me everywhere I go. I, if you're going to insist on using them, I, I recommend you, you do something like that. And what I came up with was there was absolutely nothing in that timeline that I didn't already know that I cared to know. Nothing. No news items or anything like that. And what I've noticed is the people that I actually miss the most on social media, the ones that are still on Big Blue and have not come over to the alternatives, that I actually really care about, guess what? I know everything that's going on in their lives anyway because they communicate with me directly, personally. Email, text, telegram, etc. So I'm just going to point out that if you think you'll lose something, well, you won't. What you'll lose is wasted time, I think, is, is and being frustrated and being angry. And I just encourage everybody that's over there on Facebook watching me right now, please please share this stream while you're there, since you're there anyway. While it's going live, maybe I'll get banned, you know. Because I want to say something very directly to those of you that are on Facebook right now. The platform you're using is owned by people who hate you. They hate you, they despise you, they see you as nothing but uh, uh, basically, you're you're like a, a a sack of blood to them, and they're giant leeches, and they sell you to the lowest common bidder, right? They despise you, they hate you, they despise everything that you stand for. If you listen to me, I promise you, they despise everything that you stand for. But it's up to you. I'm not telling you you're wrong if you're still there or anything like that. I'm just kind of pointing that out, and I'm just the bigger thing I wanted to point out is I've. I've literally missed nothing i I thought maybe I was, and I attempted to find something today, and I couldn't so let's move on from there. Uh, I want to talk about calculating your time to start um, your siege and as I said, just I always try to have a little bit of fun with things today and um, I I, I put that picture up, and for those that can't see it right now, if you go by the side or by the video recording, uh, it's Gollum from Lord of the Rings. And uh, yeah, it, you know, it says we 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 wants to start the seeds. We know we mustn't uh, yet, but we wants to. And I don't know who created that meme. I did make a copy of it today myself. Um, and put it up but it was only because I couldn't find the original one somebody made that meme could you know credit to the meme lord that made that meme because it's pretty funny Um, but what you really want to do is you want to figure out well how long does it take for this little bitty seed to grow into the size of a plant that that is ideal to go put out into my garden and depending on the plants you're going to find that most stuff is going to be four to six weeks and if you're If your plants are not ready to set out at six weeks, just about anything, it's not ready to set out at about six weeks, you've you've probably done something wrong uh, with your seed starting. So maybe we'll do a show on seed starting this week. Maybe we'll do that tomorrow. That seems like a really topical thing to get into. It's more the specifics of how, the what, the why, and what have you. But I just want to give you the when today. Well, the easiest thing to do is go to almanac.com, and I've got that here for you right now if you're watching a live stream. And uh, you see there's a little box here. And I've got a link in the the audio notes for you. You can just use the link in this uh, video, in the video notes below, to get over to the audio copy with all the resources and everything that's always there. Uh, and for those of you watching it live right now or watching it just after the live stream ended, sometimes you say the link doesn't work. It takes about an hour before I'm done with this and I get it up on the website. Um, so, you know, let's say 1,300 hours Monday the 10th and beyond it will be there. You just stick your... Uh, zip code in, and it'll show you right here, and it's telling me I live in Eagle Mountain Lake. They're not exactly right, but that's the closest place with a name, I guess. And it tells me my last spring frost is March the 28th. My first fall, fall frost is November the 9th. Now, how can they know that? Well, they can't. That number is not a guarantee. That number is an aggregate average. It's it, it's based on the most common you know, annual results. If you put your plants out after March the 28th, you are going to not have a frost, at least not a heavy one to deal with. Your plant should survive. And you can bet that you'll get to at least November 9th most years before we get a freeze. Now, the truth is this year, I don't think we got a freeze until well after Thanksgiving. Um, and despite all of the hysteria because we had, you know, the icepocalypse or whatever that they, they decided to call it, um, this year, uh, last year in Texas, right? With it freezing so bad in February. We had a really mild March. I don't think we had any freezing weather after about the first week of March. So Almanac also puts about a, a, a two-week fudge factor in there against the averages. where This is where you really, really should be safe. I just want to say, sometimes Mother Nature's like, yeah, you know what, uh, I'm Mod Nature, and I don't read Almanacs. So there could always be the outlier, but that's, that's there. And I wanted to show you something else. Um, And again, those of you that are not watching a live stream, this will be available in the resources. And it's called a date calculator. And This is the one I use, but if you can't find one, um, just go to Google and type, or I I don't use Google anymore, DuckDuckGo and type in date calculator and you'll find it. Uh, It's at timeanddate.com. And what you do is you take your start date and then you can add or subtract. In this case, we're going to subtract six weeks and it averages that out to 42 days and it says if you, for me, if I want to be putting my plants out by the 28th of March, I need to start my seeds February 14th, which is Valentine's Day, and that makes it really, really easy for me to uh, to remember. I've been I've been doing that for a long time, and uh, Valentine's Day is one of those days that you know if you're married, you probably shouldn't forget. Dorothy and I are not big on Hallmark holidays at all. We don't make a big deal out of or anything, but you know at least you throw like a Happy Valentine's Day and maybe take her out to dinner. Uh, you know, somewhere around that date for that date or something. So it makes it really easy for me to remember around Valentine's Day, I need to be getting my seeds started in about two weeks after that for stuff that only needs four weeks. The reason this stuff is important, and I, and I wanted to talk about it, and I used a little, uh, little uh, you know, funny thing with Gollum from Lord of the Rings about we want to start the seeds, but we know we mustn't, um, is that that actually is really important it's actually really important that you don't start your seeds too early because you only have so much room for that plant to grow out. And I think you also have to adjust to, well, what size plant do you want to put out, etc. And I tend to focus on about four weeks for just about everything. Four weeks in my seed starting system, the way I take care of my plants, they're pretty much ready to go out, but they can handle another two weeks. And so what I usually do is I start my stuff around Valentine's Day. And I know if I have to wait all the way to the end of March that I can. And you want a few days in there because just because March 28th is when you supposedly can doesn't mean that you'll be able to because we have, you know, like other things going on in our life other than planting plants. And how much plants are you planting? Are your beds prepared? Like there's all types of things. Usually I try to do my planting on weekends, right? So put a little fudge factor in there and that way... I can allow my plants another two weeks of growth if I need to. And then the other side of it is, I want them far enough along. I want to encourage the growth to be aggressive enough and I want, you know, we'll get into this if we do a show on seed starting this this week. But you don't want really tall plants, right? Really tall leggy plants are weak plants. You want You want mean little like troll plants, man. They want to be bushy and and, and what have you. So, you know, you bring your lights way down on them and, and you encourage that lateral outward growth and you get a strong, sturdy plant. With one exception, I like my tomato plants a little bit leggy. Not a lot, just a little bit because I like to bury them way down in the ground because then they root everywhere and you get a much bigger root system. And with my tomatoes, and again, I'm getting into the technical side of this. I didn't really plan on it. But I, I, don't bet, I don't bury my tomatoes super deep, really. What I do is I actually bury them like on an angle so that they're laying kind of like at about a 30-degree angle in the ground so that they have a larger lateral root system uh, that develops because so the roots will find their way down. But that way, if we have a, a season coming in where, let's say I'm looking, I'm, I'm around March 18th. I'm 10 days early. And I can look at my 10-day forecast, and there's nothing on that 10-day forecast that even approaches a freeze. I'm putting them in early, man, because in my climate, and this is where you have to kind of adapt this to your own needs. In my climate, the longer I can keep those plants bef- you know, in the ground and getting into production before the summer death, mo- death months, the better off I'm going to be. I want... Production as early as I can get in the year. I want the plant really well established by the time the heat comes. And then that way, with a little coaxing and love and extra irrigation, all we can get through that those couple months of summer that are like July and August are really the tough ones for for us here. And uh, that kind of mitigates that 225-day grow period that we have here. And then that way, when we get into fall and everything starts to cool off and the rain's returning and everything, there's enough of an established base that then I get that second explosion. It's almost like we have... Two gardening seasons and a life support season. Not for all of our crops, but for most of our crops. So I just kind of wanted to cover that because I've been getting a lot of questions about, you know, it's, it, it's winter. I should start seeds, right? Well, maybe. Because if your target date to put your plants out, you know, is like April 14th, then you're looking more at like February 28th. And so it's really important that you don't end up with plants that are overgrown and starting to stunt, because it's 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 almost worse than the plant being a little bit undersized. Once that plant kind of gets to a point where like, based on how much root space it has, how much light, how much you know headroom it has, that it starts to stunt, you can send a plant in kind of a tailspin and it's really hard then it's almost better to go and, and start anew than put a stunted plant in the ground. Sometimes once they stunt, they just don't come back. I'm wondering how many of y'all may have experienced that before. Uh, next up, and this was, uh, this was one of those articles that when I read it, I was like, I am so glad that this article has the option to basically listen to it, because there was enough pablum in it that I, I, I couldn't really read it. Um, so it does have an audio version where it's like the robot chick voice. it was a guy named Mark C. Pena, or Perna and it's called Why Education's About to Reach a Crisis of Epic Proportions I don't remember who sent this to me but one of y'all did thank you for that the the kind of the big thing right here at the point is we're at a major tipping point in education according to a recent survey 48% of teachers admitted that they had considered quitting within the last 30 days of that number 34% said they were thinking about leaving the profession and you know that's one of those things that I listen to that, and the person in me that wants to talk about everything that's wrong with government schools, and trust me, boys and girls, we're going to talk about what's wrong with government schools today, right now, in fact. But I want to like lather that up. I want to be like, yeah, man, you know, 48% admitted that they're considering quitting, and 34% said that they're considering leaving their profession altogether. And that's how bad it is for teachers. You know, God, God, we got to do something about this. And that's what this guy is pretty alarmist and he does make some astute points. He also makes a lot of the typical, you know, teachers are heroes that don't wear capes type things. But I, I want to ask you a question. Anybody that's here in the live stream, we got about like 60 on YouTube right now. If you've considered quitting your job in the past 60 days, say me in the, in the comment stream. We'll wait for those to start coming in. And I won't be surprised if we get about half of people here at least that say they've thought about quitting their job. And if you've thought about um, quitting and leaving, say "me" and leaving when you when you comment. So there's "me, me, me." And if you want, those already said "me." If you want to say "me and leave," uh, both uh, go ahead. And I think what we'll find is that if you ask any group of people, "Have you considered quitting your job in the last two months?" Uh, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of half are going to say, "Yeah, I have." I had a lot of jobs in my life that weren't even bad jobs. I had a lot of jobs in my life that, that paid really, really well. I had jobs, that, you know, multi six figure jobs that I did quit and I did leave my industry. Is it because I was underpaid? No, it's because I, you know people tend to not like being told what to do and not like being controlled. Now if you if you add to that, not only do I not want to be, you know, in this controlled environment, and if there's something I can do that gives me more fulfillment, I'm gonna go do it. But if you put me into a position, like at least what I can say about the, the, the jobs that I eventually walked away from, part of why I stayed with them as long as I did is they were merit-based. When I was in sales and what have you, the, um, the reality was if I did more, I got more. If I was better than the guy down the hall from my office, I got paid better. And when I you know, kind of was in the conventional world of running my own companies, the better I ran my company, the higher the dividend I could pay myself in the distribution every quarter. So there was a meritocracy there. If you just take the innate basic thing that people generally don't like working for other people any more than they have to, and they don't like other people telling them what to do any more than they have to deal with, and then you remove the meritocracy from it so that... Even if I do better, right, I don't get any more. And the person that's, that's, you know, in the classroom for a teacher next across the hall from me, that's a lousy teacher. And I'm going to tell you, I get shit from teachers whenever I talk about this, but they never, ever actually disagree with my facts. They only disagree with my opinions, which is really interesting. Because when, they, when I say they're shitty teachers, and they get like, Oh my God, teachers work so hard, blah, 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 I've been doing this for 25 years, you don't know, whatever, right? Whatever comes in. I'll say, so do you know any shitty teachers, honest to God, yes or no? And about half of them go on another tirade, don't answer the question. I'd say about a third of them do that. About a third of them just don't respond after that because they don't like the answer. About a third of them come back and go, yeah, there's a lot of shitty teachers. And you're paid the same as them, Right? And, and then you get the same excuse about any kind of a merit-pay system. Well, what if I get the dumb kids? What's your job to teach the kids you get? I mean, and I don't believe there's any dumb kids. I think there's dumb programs. And when I, uh, when I look at this article, and I read this, or I actually listened to this article while I ate some really awesome bacon this morning. The guy goes into like all these things that we need to do to help teachers, and there's literally nothing he says that we need to do that we can do, right? One was stop telling teachers about self-care and bubble baths and things. They don't have time for it. We need to, you know, take some of the burden off of their shoulders. Do you got a mouse in your pocket, dude? Because I don't know what what we are going to do about taking burden. Now, what I did, I have taken burden off the the education system. I took my grandchildren out of the education system and we educate them here at home while their parents work. So I've taken some of the burden, I guess. I mean, that's the way that that works out. Um, but he's like, yeah, we need to pay them more, but... And he goes through all these problems that are in the education system. And this is what I'm saying where it's like, there's a lot of problem in it, but there's a lot that's astute. He actually nails all the things that are wrong really, really, really well, but it's it's left with this false sense of redemption that somehow this can be fixed. And he spends a lot of time, as most millennials do, talking about things like personal connection, touchy-feely things. It's important that teachers have this personal connection. You can't learn without a personal connection. I'm going to tell you what makes people learn. And it's the only thing that really makes people learn. There's a lot of different ways of providing it, but there's only one thing that actually gets people to learn. One. And that is motivation. That there's something in it for me in learning. Now, we have a lot of negative motivations in school. If if I learn, I won't get a D or an F. If I don't, learn, you know, like, you, I need to do this so I can get into college so I can get a good job. So that's that sounds like it's positive, but it's actually really a negative motivation. There's an assertion that if you don't follow things exactly this way, you can't get into college. And if you don't get into, like, a top college, then your life is over. And then you have to get a degree to have a future. Where this guy actually says in his article, no, you don't. And that kids are switching on to it. So, like, he actually has the solution, like, just at his fingertips, But he can't bear to actually admit that that's the solution, which is the system needs to die. The system needs to die. Now, you want me to show you, those of you that are on the live stream, you want me to show you the actual problem right now? Where, where the problem is? When they keep telling you that, you know, these teachers are underpaid heroes that don't wear capes and whatever and what the real problem is. Right now, sitting on a screen is a, is a, is a graph. And that graph, for those that can't see it, says U.S. public schools' growth in students and school personnel 1950 to 2009. Students' population in our schools has almost doubled. It's grown 96% between 1950 and 2009. But we increased the, the number, because you always hear about the headcount issue, we've increased the number of teachers by 252%. About two and a half times... More teachers than we had for 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 double the students, so there's there's really not a headcount gap. Now what's happened is we started moving earlier and earlier in school where students have multiple teachers. When I was in school in like sixth seventh grade, even we tended to have like two teachers, like they broke into like you know kind of the math discipline, math and science discipline side. And then they broke into like the the history and English literature side, and so you went between two teachers every day now, by the time kids are in fifth or sixth grade they 're going to a different teacher for every subject so that's that 's part of that growth exceeding uh, the student headcount and yet not being sufficient. But the real thing for those who can 't see it, and the people that are seeing it are probably like sitting there with their jaw dropped right now administration and other staff has grown in the same period of time by 702%. We have 700% more administration in our schools. So here's, for all of these people that are in this industry, that are constantly out there whining and advocating, we need to pay them more, we need to pay them more. There's a lot of administrators saying that all the time. Teachers need to be paid more. I have an idea. Why don't we reduce the administration headcount down to be commensurate with the teacher headcount historically, which would cut it in half, and then if we really want to pay teachers more without taxing anybody or stealing any more money or anything like that, since the money's already there, take all that administrative salary and distribute it amongst the teachers? You guys want to get on board with that? I don't think you do, but, you know, that would, there are so many people in our school system today that they literally are unnecessary. And that is one of the things the author talks about, all this busy work teachers have to do. A lot of these administrators exist to ensure the compliance of the teacher with busy work bullshit. You know, and, and, and I'm sure some of that staff is things like, you know, custodians and stuff like that. You know, we had like one janitor in my high school, and I, I don't remember the total, number of students in my high school. It's a pretty small school, but I think I graduated in a class of about 300. So call it 1,200 kids. We had one custodian. Do you know why? Because we cleaned up our own shit or we got our asses handed to us. That's why. We didn't have people waiting on us and taking care of things on our behalf and things like that. So like the guy did the basic things that you needed some, some guy to make sure happened. You know, you had a lunch staff. It was a pretty small lunch staff. And then you had teachers. We had a principal, a vice principal, and a dean. That was it. These schools today, they they run these schools like they're they're uh, like divisions the of some corporation or something like that, and they kind of are. The whole thing's become a cash cow, and and this is this is my solution. My solution is we stop pretending that we can fix this. We stop pretending that the lies that they're telling you are true. And, and right now, for those on the screen, you see the institution of learning that my uh, that we use to help educate my grandchildren. It's called Excellus Academy. And I, I brought it up because I want to make sure I, sh- I do something. I, I've talked about this so much, I almost feel like I shouldn't keep mentioning them. They're not a sponsor. They don't pay me. They don't have a referral program or anything like that. But in spite of the fact that I mention them so much, I get about an email every other day or so. Hey, Jack, what's the name of the school you use for your grandkids? And so I figured, you know, if you see it, maybe it'll make a little more sense. But I also want to... Make sure you guys know about this. So this costs about $250 a month per student. However, right here under scholarships, you'll see the Roger Billing Scholarship Program. And when you read this, you'll think it, 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 it can't be that simple. So it drops your tuition to $79 a month or $699 a year, which I find to be absolutely, totally worth the cost. Now, what do you have to do to get this massive discount of $2,400 a year? Your kid has to watch a video that's about an hour long once a week and make a comment to prove that they were there and they watched it. And the reason that they do this is Roger Billings is the founder of Excellus uh, Academy. He's also the inventor, uh, inventor of the personal home computer, the first ever hydrogen car and gigabit Ethernet. So when I'm challenged with, "Well, are they getting a good education?" I ask people if the founder of their local school invented gigabit ethernet, the personal computer, or the hydrogen car, and they usually say no and then they get mad. Um, but he also founded something called the National Academy of Science. The National Academy of Science is a very limited in discipline. I think there's like 9 9 degree paths in National Academy of Science. It's obviously a STEM school. And it's something in the neighborhood of 96% of graduates from the National Academy of Science go on to work in their field of study, which is insane. It's better than anything else out there. If you could go, it's a very expensive school to attend, but you can't go for money. It's 100% funded by scholarships. And this is one of their ways, This, this, these videos, which makes these little kids really stretch sometimes, but there's enough in there to keep them interested. And even though they make the little kids interested, the stretch makes the older kids stay interested. And our grandkids watch this every week, and they, they learn a lot from it, and it gives a big discount. And, you know, it's, it's never too early to start handing responsibilities to kids. So, like, when I told my grandson he had to watch this every week, he's like, that's one more thing to do. I'm like, do you want to pay the $200 a month extra? You can. And, and real quick, he became motivated. And see, that's what I'm talking about is motivation. Motivation is how you actually gain education. And instead of all these negative connotations of, of, of education, if the motivation is it'll be fun or it'll be useful, and all this shit about you know, distance learning doesn't work, it doesn't work, we have to be in the classroom, I, I, I need you people that are saying that to stop saying it and, and to just pause for like 10 seconds and evaluate whether or not that's the case. Because I could take my phone right now out to the living room and the, the dining room where my grandkids are learning right now. And I can show you them learning, and they're having a great time. They're enjoying what they're learning. I just had my my freaking kindergarten level five-year-old granddaughter explain gravity to me. Okay? So, yeah, like what's the motivation is, is that she gets excited when it's time to do school most of the time. And when she really doesn't want to do school, you know what? As long as it doesn't become chronic, we just do something else. It's okay. Kids are not meant to sit for eight hours a day, right? And they do most of their work in an hour to three hours a day, depending on what the workload that day is. And, you know, we can go through summer and not do any school, or like what we had my grandson do this year, one subject through summer. And if he hadn't done school through summer, we would have unenrolled and paused and then enrolled again, and you have that flexibility. So you don't have to pay if you're not using it. They can take as many or as few as fast as they want. If they can go really fast through science and they have to go slow in math, okay, you do that. It's just a better way. And and the reality is all this stuff about distance learning doesn't work at all, it, it's bullshit. It's bullshit. All that happened was you parents got to look into the classroom and see how bad some of your teachers are. Because remember where this started. When I ask teachers that get angry with me and send me hate emails in in all caps, and you can hear them banging the keyboard in the background in your head, man, you can hear, you don't know anything, right? Um, When you ask them, are there any shitty teachers? They will generally, if they give you an answer at all, say yes. And if you say, is it like 10%, then they go and they dump. Oh, you have no idea. It's at least half of all teachers suck. Really, but we should give them a raise, assuming that you're good at what you do, so you can get one too. And then they get really mad, but then they start examining it. And I think that's where this this the the truth in this. Like I said, even though they you know this this kind of a little bit pearl clutching, with half of all teachers said they're going to leave. Um, yeah, half of everybody thinks about leaving. It happens all the time, but I do think there is going to be more and more teacher exodus. More and more teacher exits, But I think one of the things that's going to mitigate it is I know some people really have been brainwashed in this. There's not a lot of jobs out there for people that are full-time teachers, and that's all that they've ever done, that pay anything close to what you're getting paid, if you include the benefits, uh, both financially and logistically, and how much time you get off every year. And if there is, go do that job then. Then go do that job. And, and, and I've, I've seen enough of it. I've seen teachers leave and then run back to teaching because it's not as hard a gig as it's made out to be. Um, the interesting thing and the delusional nature of the whole industry was the article starts out with the guy said he, he asked a bunch of superintendents, you know, how many teachers can you lose before it puts a real burden on the system? And one school superintendent said, what? What? He said, if we lose even one, it's a tremendous burden. There's a word for people that, 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 that have the audacity to say something so stupid. It's called delusional. And that's, that's the problem in the entire space. It's, it's a delusional space. It's a group of people who have been artificially having their egos inflated and their victimology inflated for decades. And it's coming to a head now. I would get my kids out if there was any way if I were you. Because it's not going to get any better. It's not going to get any better. One more time, it's not going to get any better. Right, uh, I got an email from someone, and he said he's thinking about moving to a town. They found a house they kind of like and all. And I, he doesn't really say if it's in the town or near the town, right? Because like, that actually has a lot to do with you know how you would evaluate this. And I'd have to know the town and the existing demographics of the town to be 100% on this. But he basically said the town's population is only about 800, and it's been in decline. And there may not even be a town you know, in the foreseeable future. It may just blow up and go away, and then there'll just be whoever's left living there and buildings falling down. Is there any dangers in that? And he said he went on, I think, our Discord, and somebody mentioned taxes, and he hadn't really even thought about that. Well, I don't think you're going to save that much in taxes. Like, city-town taxes are generally not that huge a portion of your property tax bill, and... As someone that lives in an unincorporated area, and I'm happy to pay the cost of doing so, by the way, because of the freedom it affords me, what I can tell you is your taxes tend to actually go up because the county has to assume additional responsibilities for you in a sparse area. So a lot of times your overall tax burden is actually higher when you're not incorporated within a town. There are towns and cities where that's not the case because their taxes are really, really high. I'm just betting that this town's taxes are not that high to begin with. So it could actually, it could be a wash, it could be a little higher or lower. I don't know that I'd worry that much about it. Here's my concern about towns that are in a collapsed state. If everybody just leaves, okay, fine. If everybody except a few kind of homesteader types stick around and and, and the rest leave, okay. But I've seen a lot of towns in this country that that have done this. I've taken a lot of trips where instead of flying, I've driven for a variety of reasons. Even before the whole COVID thing and how much airplanes suck now, often just to kind of see. Like I don't, I don't think most Americans see enough of America to actually understand America. We we are a big country, and we are an incredibly diverse country. Uh, we are diverse in in you know race and and demographics of, of just about every type, but we're also diverse. In geography and in climate type and in terrain and in the age of towns, like that's actually a, another diverse component like Boston and, and those towns up in the north. These are really, really old towns. Yet we have some towns that are relatively new that, you know, they weren't even if you went back to 1950, there wouldn't even be a town there. We have old towns that have come and gone, and we have old towns that have made it all the way through. We have young towns that have never actually turned into anything of, of any substantial uh, uh, you know, thing. And we have fairly young cities and towns that, that have. And there's a lot of diversity in that. And what I've noticed is a lot of these places that I drive through, you can tell there really used to be something there. There really used to be something there. They used to be vibrant. There was a time when it was probably growing. I've seen especially places that looked like they relied on tourism that shifted, like uh, a couple towns in in southern Arkansas that I remember from one drive along this lake, and you could tell that this used to be a beautiful, amazing place. And then, you know, you drive through what's left of the downtown area, which was never big, but it was a little downtown, kind of like I grew up with in, in, in Minersville and Boxville, Pennsylvania areas. And, uh, like, the stores literally have trees drawing through the roof, and you can look at the tree, and you can just go, okay, that tree's probably about 15 years old. This thing probably fell apart about 20, 25 years ago. And in some of them, they're really gone. And it doesn't look like if you lived anywhere around there, other than not having, you know, a lot of local resources, that you'd have any problems. And in other ones, most of the productive people left... And most of the non productive people who didn't have means to leave stayed. And if you've gone through about a generation since that started, you end up with a lot of like petty theft and petty crime, and a new person is going to be a target. So that's a big part of like what is the existing demographic? I don't see most places like this as being a place that trouble comes to, right? But if trouble's there and it's being held in check by decent people and the decent people leave, and you go from being the decent people being in a slight majority to being in a minority, you can have a lot of problems really, really quick. So that's another thing that I, I I would consider. Personally, me being me and thinking the way that I do, if I'm going to move to a place that's in any way like what's being described here, I'm either going in with a rescue plan that I'm going to be part of the rejuvenation of this place and I'm going to want to bring people with me, and encourage people to come in and start building venues and start building again and seeing the opportunity that exists in these places where, you know, there's, there's generally a pretty decent workforce to be had because there aren't a lot of jobs. There's generally very affordable real estate. People are hungry for something to be better, to be involved, to revitalize an economy. I'm either doing that or I'm not going near it in the first place. I'm gonna, if I'm going to, like, bet on being left alone, then I'm going to go, even if that little town that's imploding is here, I'm going over here. I'm going 30 minutes out, and I think that if you're 30 minutes out from a town like this, then your your problems are largely mitigated. But I'm just going to say that I saw some very clear evidence in a few towns like this that when we rolled through, we didn't slow down. Okay, and and there was a reason we didn't, especially with out of plates, out of state plates. Like you really stick out that you're not from around here. Now, are you boy? and uh, and so I think you have to be careful of that, and then what is your plan? What is your long term plan? Um, because what could happen, some of these towns they do dry up and just kind of blow away. you know modern ghost towns. Well, where are you going to procure everything as far as like you know supplies when that happens if and if you if you're like, "I don't mind being remote, then maybe you'd be better off being remote in the first place. Uh, On that note, we're going to actually talk about on Wednesday on the Unloose the Goose podcast uh, with my fellow geese on that show about what would make cities work. So we're going to revisit that topic. So maybe you want to check that out. That'll be 4 o'clock Central Standard Time uh, this Wednesday, and it will be on the Goose channel. It'll also be here on my channel as well. Um, But yeah, uh, and Mike's saying that's exactly what I want to do, and I think that he's talking about revitalization. And I I personally think, if you're going to try that, that there is strength in numbers. And I would, if I wanted to do this, if I wanted to personally take this initiative and go try to revitalize uh, a a, a small town, I would put together a consortium of people that are like-minded first. And then we would identify, like, how far is everybody willing to move, what states are even in play, because right now, if you wanted me to try to do this in a rural Pennsylvania, I would laugh at you so hard that you would die. I mean, really, like, there's, I, I'm not going outside of any state. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not, you know, right now, I, Dorothy and I have talked about this. If we didn't live in Texas, Florida, or a couple other states when this COVID crap started, we would be here now. We, we, we had this conversation again over the break, and, and we both agreed 100%. Like, no matter what we had to do, we would not, if we were living in Pennsylvania, or we living in New Jersey, or New York right now. Or, when this started, we would have gotten out. Like, there's no, you know, so you got to, like, have a consortium that's, like, we're willing to invest in this area. And then, what is everybody willing to, what does everybody have as a budget to find housing? You know, what kind of business do you have? And if it's all people like me, you know, we can do it, but. We're not really going to make a huge difference on the ground unless we expand beyond our businesses. So, like, people that can develop, like, let's say a venue or coffee shops or things like that, like, or local farming or stuff, like, that's going to have a lot more impact when you go there. So, people are necessary, but production is necessary. And and I would have to go in with a team to take this on because I think if you go into a place like that without a team, you're not going to get anywhere because no one's going to immediately jump on board with you. But if four or five entrepreneurs can go in, at least turn up one new thing right away. Identify the thing that has the greatest chance to succeed in this place and then jointly support it. And then all of a sudden you start to get community engagement because you, you hire local people to work and now you're providing jobs. And now all of a sudden people will listen to you and then you can start expanding and bringing in more resources for revitalization. Uh, it's another way of doing an intentional community. And what I like about this or a similar approach to building intentional community is that you get off of this whole thing. We're all going to buy a commune and live together and not be communists, because I, I have not seen it work out for very many people. And I, I'd like to give it a shot. I would love to get a hold of a thousand acres and do you know 99 year leases on one acre plots or three quarter acre plots and have a, a common area and enough enough money feeding into it to maintain the common areas and develop local economy. I'd love to do that, but I just don't know that humans are wired right to do it yet. I don't know that we're there yet. Anyway, check out the Goose podcast on Unloose uh, the Goose on Wednesday afternoon, 4 o'clock. Again, it'll be here on my channel as well as on others. Alright, um, next up, I had a, a, a guy I haven't heard from in a while named John and he, he reached out to me and he said he started a business at my urging, a side hustle and it's in the food world. It's, he's doing like value-added products where you're actually cooking, canning, doing stuff like that. And it's it's doing really well. What happened is this year he actually did less business than he could have done because things like containers, right? Like if you're doing canning, and I didn't get a lot of details, but assuming you're canning something, you need ball jars and lids and rings, right? Um, Or other packaging and things like that. And with the supply shortages that we've had, he's like, you know, I... uh, I, 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 I couldn't actually do as much business as I would have been able to do. And when you're in a business like that, a lot of times you need to hit like 100% of what you're capable of, especially early on, to make enough money to make it worth doing. Right? And he's like, you know, am I crazy for being in a business like this? I don't think so. In fact, we're going to be talking about food shortages pretty soon here. So maybe that's another reason to, uh, to be in a business like this. I, I think that we need to think about this a little bit differently, though. How do we solve that problem? How do we solve that problem? So my number one thing I want as a business person is I want my customers from last year to be my customers this year still. And I want them to be my customers next year. So how can I incentivize them to maintain connection with me? So if I'm using any sort of container that's recyclable, I don't want them taking it down to the recycle center And where it will probably be destroyed anyway and not actually recycled. I want them bringing it back to me. If there's any way I can legally do that or even not so legally, but it's not, you know, I don't have a huge risk associated with it. Uh, so if I have people returning jars, for instance, or is there another way that I can do what I'm doing and reduce my overall cost of materials? The other thing I want to do is I want to build up enough, uh, reserve capital that these things that are expendables that also like, You know, Some of it's not coming back. No matter how good a program you run, it's not going to come back. But it doesn't go bad. A jar does not go bad. A bag does not go bad. A carton does not go bad. And so when supply is high and I know I have this repeat business coming in, I want to stock up heavily in that point. I also think that it would be wise for most people in business today because these supply shortages are not going away to start thinking more and more like a permaculture designer, even if you're not in the ag space or food space. When you take a permaculture design course, you realize it's about so much more than growing food. It's about providing all of the needs that humans need from where humans exist, to, to rely as little on external inputs as possible. And I think sometimes we get into puritism versus pragmatism with that. Rely on... And enjoy are different things. So, I am not going to be 100% living off my local economy. I try to make sure as much of what I need can come from my local economy and my local piece of land that I own and control, and from, you know, resources where I can go fishing and hunting and gathering, etc. I want as much of my needs fulfilled from that as possible. But you know what? I'll never, I'll never be able to enjoy a chocolate bar. I don't eat a lot of them, but you know, if I want a piece of chocolate, I'm not going to have chocolate produced in Fort Worth, Texas. Not going to happen. You know, we're not going to be growing cocoa beans in, in Fort Worth, Texas. So having the luxuries beyond what you can obtain locally, that's, that's fine for your lifestyle, in my opinion. But with your business, you should try to figure out how to get by with what you have as much as possible, including creating production uh whether that be natural production or human production. It it's 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 not an easy answer because I don't really have enough knowledge as to what he's short on. But that's that's how all of us need to start thinking. How do I take this problem and turn it into a solution? In the words of permaculture, you know, is there some other method of containment or some other method of present uh preservation of a food that would allow for containment? And then thinking beyond that like you know, if I had a really great in business like this, that I you know, I did canning and stuff like that, and I, I was making apple butter or whatever, right, I would package up everything that I make as far as my recipes into a book, and I would sell the cookbook. I would sell the cookbook or the recipe book or, you know, preservation manual or whatever it is uh, in electronic format. And I wouldn't even sell for a ton of money, 10 bucks or whatever, 15 bucks. And what people will say, because they're short-sighted, well, then, if you do that, you know it's going to happen. Then people won't buy it from you anymore because they're going to make it themselves. You know, how many people know how to make a hamburger and go to freaking McDonald's three times a week? That's not a thing. There's people that will buy it and go, gee, there's a lot of shit to this. I'm going to go back to John and buy from him again, right? Like, it's not worth it. But the, the bigger thing is, when I make a product that has zero gravity weight, there's no gravity well against it. If it's an electronic product, I can beam it through the magic of the Internet to Bisbane, Australia, right, or, or, or to Cehuataneo, Mexico, in seconds in return for electronic money. Then I've just broadened my market to the globe. And the kind of business John's talking about, you'll never have that type of a market segment to sell to. And even if it's not a lot of money, even if it's 10%, Ten percent keeps businesses afloat. Ten 10% percent 10% extra makes a business very profitable. Ten percent less makes it a, a money losing operation sometimes, depending on total volume. So there's just some some thoughts that I have on that. Uh, next up, I, I did want to uh, hit on this uh, a bit, or actually I wanted to read this one to you. So let me let me find this real quick. I got a letter, an email from someone that chronicled their quitting. They chronicled their quitting, and they were leaving Intel, I believe, is the company here. Yeah. All right. So this comes from Brian. Brian says, I am a longtime listener and MSB Life member and thought I'd share my Exodus story from Big Tech. As of this morning, I've tendered my resignation and hope it inspires others to take the same leaf if Life situation makes it possible. Here's how I worded our corporate HR department to start the termination process. As of this Friday, January the 7th, 2022, it will be my last day employed at Intel Corporation. This email will serve as my desire to terminate my at-will employment agreement. I've enjoyed my 16-year career uh, at Intel, but with recent changes to the terms of employment, I can no longer good conscious work for a corporation that requires mandatory medical procedures, in this case vaccine injections, as part of the employment agreement. My decision is no reflection on my current co-workers, managers, or others in Intel's employee. I've truly enjoyed working with them, but I must take a stance for those that cannot in this regard. Thank you for this opportunity to work with some of the world's best engineers that in many cases have become some of my best friends. I will miss you all as I set forth on a new employment path. Sincerely, Brian XXX, because we're not going to tell you his last name. He said, I'm not the only one doing this, as there are many in the same Uh, In the same this week, all around big tech, overall, the next few months, will will this will increase. There are hard dates set forth where mandatory unpaid leaves of absence will kick in if the employee refuses to get the vaccine. In this case, my former employers will begin in April. I am also okay with using my employer's name, as I would surely wonder why they would find that I've communicated about something they did not want discussed in this corporate policy field uh, fully, they, can, they should own up to their decision. Uh, Brian in Oregon. Okay, so there's a couple things in this. Number one, I'm, I'm proud of Brian, and, and not everybody can do that. And I don't know that Intel will care when one employee does that, but they might care when, like, 10% of their employees do that. Whether that's going to happen or not, we don't know. But it does show the overall strain on the system that's being created, and that it's something that I've talked to a lot of employers recently Uh, When I go out, I always have conversations with people around me, especially like in restaurants and bars. Like that's an easy place to to start up a conversation with somebody. And, you know, you're always waiting on a table now, even when there's a lot of open tables because there's not enough staff. And a lot of times you'll be talking to somebody. When you go out like we do, we go out like the middle of the day, you know, in the week, right, because we have the freedom to do that. So you end up with people with flexibility in their lives around you. And they're usually having business while they're going out or they have some level of freedom due to entrepreneurship, and it's really easy to start the conversation about, hey, it's amazing we have to wait this long, right? And then you start talking to them, and, and a lot of times you'll end up talking to someone that's hiring and firing people and wondering why they can't get anybody to work. But when you ask them, so do you make your employees wear a mask? A lot of times they say, well, yeah. And then they don't get. <laughs> they don't get that maybe that's why nobody wants to work for you, right? You know, And I understand some employers feel like they have no choice. But many do, and they choose to enact this stupidity anyway. Are you like, are you guys requiring the vaccine? Well, yeah, they're making us. Who's they? You know, we're in Texas. We don't have they making you do it. Oh, the federal mandate. What do you mean the one that hasn't cleared yet? The one that's in the court system right now? Well, yeah, but we're just being prepared. You don't think this is affecting the number of people that want to work for you? And I'm like, Do you ever have somebody ask you those questions when they're considering working for you and then not get back with you? Well, yeah, well, what do you think's going on here? And there there is going to be a point in this, guys. Trust me, there's going to be a point where this is going to hit critical mass and this whole thing is going to fall apart. Because there's about I'm going to estimate about forty percent at least of the workforce that will never ever 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 never ever 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 never ever 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 accept this jab in the arm. Ever. Ever. Never, ever, never. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm, I keep threatening to do it. I'm gonna make a T-shirt that says, "I am not hesitant. I have declined. Never." Okay. And you can't run the business of America with 40 percent of the workforce not there. You can't do it with 15 percent of the workforce not there. We're barely doing it now. And the people who are gonna say no ever, never, ever, no, right? They're not going to change their mind. If you haven't done it yet, I don't know that there's anything anybody can say or do other than maybe putting a gun to your head, and if that happens, then it's all bets off, right? It will make you do it now. This idea that all of a sudden, just going to go, gee, we we're wrong, go ahead, man, do it, right? It's not going to happen. So eventually you get to a point where things are, are going to get to, like... I have to run my business. And, okay, I fired all the people that the government said I was supposed to fire, and now I can't hire anybody. Now, the type of person that I fired was generally the one that wasn't afraid, came to work, did their best all the time, and now I don't have any of those people anymore. I can either hire from that pool. Now, the ones I fired are probably not coming back, but I can hire from that pool and just give up, or I can go out of business. And that's where we're getting to. That's where we're getting to right now. And that brings me to my next topic. And if you guys have questions and comments for me, you can go ahead and start dropping them in uh, off of YouTube or Face Facebook right now uh, in the comments, and I should see them. Um, how do we solve the food shortage issue? I, I you know, being a survival podcast, being a host of the show for almost 14 years now, I get tons of emails every week from tons of people freaked out by a lot of the uh, fear porn type uh people in my space about the food shortage, the food shortage, the food shortage, food shortage, food the shortage, food shortage. There is no food shortage. There is no food shortage. There is no food shortage. That doesn't mean there's not shortages of the food for you to buy. There is no shortage of food in America. And if we're gonna fix the problem, we have to start from correctly analyzing the problem. So you can't say the problem is X and solve for X, and get a valid solution if the problem is Y. right? If the problem is Y, we have to solve for Y not solve for X. So what do I mean when I say there's no food shortage? There's enough grain to meet all the requirements that the United States has for grain that's already been harvested and is being grown for the foreseeable future. We have enough. We have enough, we have enough, we have enough. There are enough cows to put steaks in all the bellies. There are enough chickens to make nuggets for all. There is enough food, period, in America, being produced in America, for America, and we would still have an export economy if we did everything perfectly. Our capacity to produce more is virtually unlimited. We can turn up and produce more food, both through conventional and non-conventional agricultural practices, like this, if we really want to. Now, there's a limit to what we can do with things like cattle. It takes about 18 months to finish, uh, you know, finish off a steer. Um, it takes, conversely, about 12 weeks to finish a meat chicken. So there, there are different times to ramp up. But none of this is actually beyond our capability. None. And there, are, as I've taught for years, there are ways to do it that are so much better than what we are doing and what we have been doing both from a production standpoint and from an environmental impact standpoint we could start converting right now tons of agricultural land into civil pasture systems uh, producing meat which the people in power don't want to do they don't want you to eat meat they want you to eat gruel there's there's two main diets in the world right? there's only two a master's diet and a slave's diet and they want you eating a slave's diet because then you're sick and you're easy to control. Period. The master, the master is the king. The king eats venison, baby. That's it's good to be the king. That's why it's good to be the king. The king eats the venison. The king eats the wild boar. The king eats the red deer. Right. The king eats the, eats the pheasant. The king eats the meat. You eat the gruel. That's the plan. But whether you want to eat gruel or the highest quality meat there is, there is no shortage of food. There are supply chain issues. That's the actual problem. And when I look at them I see two things. Two things. And and, and I can't read your I think it's yogurt roots or yogurt boots. I got a yogurt roots. Uh says Trader Joe's fresh veggies area looks sparser than I've ever seen. Yeah there's no shortage of fresh veggies. There's no shortage. It's a supply chain issue. That that's what I'm saying. And it's two things. There's the natural effect of having worker shortages throughout everything in America today that's causing some disruption. But I believe this is an orchestrated disruption. That these people really want you to live on soybeans that are colored red with beet juice and believe that it's a burger. And they will do anything and everything in their power to make that happen. Okay? anything and everything possible within their power to make that happen including starving you out and you might wonder why they want to do it I do think there is some legitimate reality here to they want to control us the slaves diet the entire oligarchy makes a fortune sickness and illness and there is some of that but money is the primary motivator and here's the reality it's very profitable it's very profitable to turn soybeans into fake meat it's extremely profitable and you can automate soybean farming and grain farming and potato farming and rapeseed oil farming yeah it's called rape it's not canola it's rapeseed they market changed that, didn't they? Um, all of these toxic foods that they want us to consume. It is all very much things that can be automated. We can produce, you know, by the bushel these grain crops. One person can produce 10,000 times what one person could have produced a hundred years ago in these crops. And so, When you have labor shortages, plus you want to maximize profits, if you could have basically robot machines plow and harrow and harvest and thresh and ship. Because remember, we're getting to a point where the vehicles are going to drive themselves. So you're going to get to a point where literally a truck can pull in with seed, disperse it into the field, robots maintain it and harvest it and process it, and then a fleet of trucks come back and take it away, and there's almost no humans involved whatsoever. There's a lot we can do with livestock, but you're not going to automate it. You're not going to automate it. Livestock moves around. It has to be taken care of. I mean, you could probably seriously automate a lot of things with things like the chicken houses of horror, like that Tyson and Purdue have, but when you're talking about animals out on natural ground the way that animals should be treated, they're living, breathing things and we need to look at them and understand them and determine if we not want them not just to survive and thrive but we want the landscape that they're in to become better there is a certain level of art to this of knowing i need to move these animals twice you know in this next 3 day period instead of once there there is a a, a skill set to be developed there and it puts people in touch with the land, which is the last thing they want. They want to shove us all into cities. They want to put us all into these little controlled megapocalypses. And they want us to all feel like it's somehow wrong or dirty of us to go out and ruin nature. But what they're calling nature is nothing but these plowed, destroyed, chemically infused fields. That's not nature. right? The absence of humans does not mean nature. That's, that's, the, that's like the greatest lie that these bastards have sold to you and to your children and to your grandchildren, folks. That nature means the absence of us. You can have everything be complete shit and garbage and no humans in it. We can have tons of robots out there growing soy and wheat and corn and frickin' rapeseed and all this other garbage crap food constantly polluting the, the, the groundwater, constantly pol- polluting our bodies... But when you go out there, you won't see any people, you won't see any buildings, so that's all natural, right? We are native to planet Earth. We are, us, human beings. We are natural. I am as natural as a wolf. I am as natural as a coyote. I am as natural as a deer. I am as natural as an eagle. I am as natural as a hawk. I'm as natural as a largemouth bass. I'm as natural. Pick the animal of your choice that you love. A wildebeest, a lion, a tiger, a bear. So are you. We are of this place. Removing us is not equal nature. Preventing the destruction of natural systems is our mission, is our job, is our purpose. I actually believe that that's why humans have evolved. It is, it is Is our purpose. Now, I'm not saying we're fulfilling it. It is our purpose to actually ensure the protection of wild systems and to take an active participation role in them. And the reason I can say that is that when I look at what happens when it's done properly, we make nature better. When, when you look at a system like, let's say, Mark Shepard built up in Wisconsin, Wisconsin. Um, I can't think of the name of his farm now, but you can look up Mark Shepard, Wisconsin, and you'll you'll find his stuff if you're not familiar with him. And and you have these systems, and and what it was was grain field and and eroded red clay that flooded out every year when it rained. And now you have all these trees, and you have pigs and cattle and, and poultry pulsing through the system. You're producing chestnuts and apples and plums and all sorts of other crops. And if you dig into the soil, the red clay is now black topsoil for a foot deep, but the little ponds, both seasonal and long term, all of a sudden are teeming with life. And you know, when he's finding frogs on his property that were thought extinct, when you have amphibian populations doing well, you have a really run natural system. It's one of the true, you know, like the canary in the coal mine type things. When when the first thing that really gets hit during environmental degradation is amphibians. They're they're like the the easiest animal to disrupt, to destroy, to kill, to push out, and, and and to eliminate. And so when they start returning, you know you're doing something right. And everywhere that we do these things, you know, if you listen, like sometimes when Jeff Lawton's on the show, he does, does an expert counsel answer for us. And if he's outside, you know, in the morning, usually, he usually records his answers for us when he's having breakfast outside in the mornings. And you just hear life everywhere. When I was a kid, this is not so long ago, I'm not that old yet, getting there. Um, I remember if, if, we, if I was hunting in the evenings, and I was hunting like the, the wood lines along the farms in rural Pennsylvania, there were sounds of everything. Birds, bugs. I mean, the place just would erupt with noise first thing in the morning and right in the evening. You would hear so much And when I go to places like that now, I hear almost deafening silence. Because we kill everything to do these things. And we don't have to. And there's not a single problem when it comes to food supply that not only can't be solved, but but as we solve it, we'll actually improve everything for all life on this planet. It's actually not that hard. It's, in the words of Bill Mollison, embarrassingly simple. Uh, anyway, guys, now, uh, yeah, New Forest Farm is, is Mark's place. I don't see anything in all caps. I think maybe some people have asked me some things, but please, if you have anything you want me to comment on or questions for me from today's show, go ahead and drop them in in all caps, and uh, we'll see what we can do um, about getting you guys an answer or communicating with you. Yogurt says this is Agenda 21. I, I, I believe so. Uh, it's, it's, it's Agenda 2030 now, I guess is what they call it. It's Agenda 21 is largely misunderstood as uh, as to what it is. And we have some people that go so crazy with the conspiracy theories that the horrifying truth of what it really is gets buried. I've, I've seen how this permeates and gets into local communities for a long time. Going all the way back to the early 2000s, I remember being in Chamber of Commerce meetings and Hearing these people come in that we're supposedly going to like revitalize communities and all, and we're worried about how, at the same time how do we do it environmentally sustainably? And it's always been the same thing: higher density populations. That's that, that's always their solution, right? That that's always their solution. We can we can force more people into a smaller area, and that's good for the environment, as though we're not still drawing. Right. You can you can force more people, you know. How many angels can you put on the head of a pin, right? Like you can like ultra like we can make giant skyscrapers and whatever, but you will never sustain that population in that footprint. You'll still be taking from somewhere else. And you're gonna produce waste that you will never one hundred percent deal with. And so you're still gonna be polluting out. So that's that's not a solution to the problem at all. Uh Eric says, and and guys, please do all caps. We'll be more likely to see this. Uh, What's your method of avoiding personal bias when researching facts and politically religious and scientific charged subjects? So this is what I try to do. Some of these things are pretty self-evident, right? Like once you know a thing, you can't pretend you don't know a thing and pretend to be objective anymore, right? But I still try to like admit I could be wrong. Anything you think you know, you could be wrong. I try to be agnostic about all things, and this is what I think based on all the evidence that I have up to this point, but I can't possibly 100% know in most instances. What I try to do is ask myself, if I was hired to prove me wrong, like you hired me like an attorney to prove myself wrong, how would I do that? And then I, I, I try to become informed enough on a subject that I can argue against myself effectively. And and but then the, the key with that is not emotionally led. Not based on fallacy that most people believe. I, I believe I could take either side of most issues. And if you give me a group of people in a room, you know, most people are easily led. You know, that's kind of the lesson from the Jedi mind trick in Star Wars guys, it only works on the weak-minded. Well, that most people are weak-minded. That's the lesson in that, right? And I could take either side of that, especially if I was a charlatan and didn't have principles, and I could have the majority of people in that room agree with either side of that issue in about 30 to 40 minutes. I know I can do that because when you, you know what, when you manage sales territories and you have to do presentations to boards of directors, you have to convince them that the information is good even if it's bad. You get really good at it really fast. So I don't mean that way. I mean without manipulation of data, without invoking emotional ploys. Can I build a case against my own position? And I go out and try to build a logical refutation of my own position. And then one of two things occur. I become 100% convinced that I was right in the first place. Or I find out I was wrong or partially wrong. And then I modify my position. And you will never be able to say that the way I'm going to find the answer is by finding reliable information in of itself. If you're not willing to critically attack your own position, and this is where I think sometimes people think, well, he doesn't listen. He won't listen to reason. He won't listen to a lot. When you start telling me things that I've already been through, when you start making a case that I already made against myself, and I already destroyed the case, and I already found the flaws, to be blunt, I don't have the fucking time, right? I don't. Like, I don't have time to sit here and listen to you explain to me something that I already know to be false, especially when I watch you going down that path that I went down myself, right? And I think that's really what's really important, um, is that we start to find these answers by actually attempting to disprove our own position. And if you're not comfortable attempting to disprove your own position then you're not evolved enough yet in your position to take it seriously. And it's hard because when you start doing this, you're going to run into most of the information is going to be things that are exaggerated and emotional. And you're going to have to dig and wade through crap that since you already feel opposite, it's hard to tolerate. The his, like if you were doing it with, you know, masking or something, there's so much hysteria, you're like, uh, 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 I don't want to do this anymore. But you know, well maybe I'm wrong. You know, it, it seems to make sense that doing this would would reduce the spread of something that transmits from exhaling. But is it true? and you can know all the facts behind it but you still have to say well is it true like what does the science say now when you stop reading opinion and start reading science the science is really clear science is abundantly clear and this is where i think it's very hard for it's very hard for people to accept you know these alternative explanations or whatever or the alternative view because it requires an understanding that all this is actually available, and the people lying to you know they're lying. And that's very hard for the average person to accept. You know, it, it really is. I don't want to go too far down that path because I said we're not going to do the COVIDs and the, and the crypto today, and we're, we're going to try not to. But I don't see a lot more. I, uh, I don't know who this is for, but Critical Chris says, Do you mean all corn or corn treated with glyphosate and pesticides? Okay, so this is how I feel about corn. Corn is a toxin for human beings. If you add glyphosate and other toxins to it, it's worse. Does that mean I never eat corn? No, it doesn't mean I never eat corn. But, you know, alcohol is a toxin, and I mitigate my consumption of alcohol because I know it's a toxin. If you try to feed somebody on a diet of corn and nothing else, they'll die. They can have all the caloric input that they want, but they'll die. Corn is a grass. You're not supposed to eat grass. You're not a cow. You're not a ruminant. Cows are not supposed to eat corn seed. The seed of a corn is designed to do what? Why do, why do corn plants make corn kernels? What is the purpose? To make more corn if you're struggling with that. It's the only reason. They don't do it because they like us. It's not like uh, corn plants have some sort of collective psychology. They said, hey, you know what? Those human beings, they need food. Let's make food for them. Right? Corn, wheat, rye, barley, all these grain crops that we are addicted to as a species, they do not benefit from being consumed. They do not benefit from being consumed. And hence they have what are known as anti-nutrients to prevent their consumption because it doesn't benefit them for us to consume them. If you look at something like an apple, and there's a lot of fructose in there, and it's more sugar than I'm comfortable with. But natural apple production is going to be limited and seasonal. You're not going to live on apples year-round. But if I'm if I'm a primitive man and I hog down an apple and I don't worry about the core because I can't afford to be throwing away the core because it's a little bit hard, and I swallow a couple apple seeds and I go out in the woods later on and I take a dump, I just planted an apple tree potentially. That apple actually benefits from me consuming it, Right? But if I eat grain, I have to process it. No human, and corn would be the exception. It's probably the least bad of grains. No human can go out into a wheat field and start pulling heads off of, of barley and eating it. You'll, you'll choke to death on, on the chaff, right? We have to go through these elaborate procedures to be able to eat these foods. And there's a lot of foods that humans have relied on historically that are like this. A very popular food in uh, Mesoamerican culture is the yuca. And they have these roots, and they're big, deep roots, and you pull them up with this cactus-looking plant, and you know what? Fried, they taste pretty good. But you know what happens if you eat them raw? You fucking die. They're full of cyanide. I can't think of, there's another thing they make, basically a form of bread. It was a cassava. Cassava we make bread from uh, in a lot of traditional cultures. But if you don't process a cassava right, it'll kill you. Uh, taro root. Taro root is like the potato of the tropics. You know, If you eat it raw, it can kill you from cyanide. Why? Because it doesn't benefit the plant for you to eat it. Any plant that doesn't benefit by being eaten by something will over time develop protections through toxins and anti-nutrients to ward off the consumption of same because it wants to reproduce. Not like it sits down and goes, let me think about this. This is just how evolutionary biology works. So these plants are chemical factories, that are producing toxins because it doesn't benefit them if you eat them. And just because we can do something to remove a toxin doesn't mean it's a natural occurring food for human beings. And this is, this is a difficult thing to explain because at the same time, it, it is the case that a lot of humanity has what it has because we learn to harness these things. We developed civilization and cities and cultural exchange, etc., and we went beyond the hunter-gatherer because we were able to figure out, hey, if we grow a whole bunch of this shit and put it over in a building over here and let somebody look after it so that it's there, if we're starving, it'll still be there and we won't die. And what we did is we took what make what is a great survival ration and we turned it into a mainstay of consumption. And I think a lot of people don't even really understand how deep this is you know, you, you hear the old, you know, like when they talk about, you know, old times and all, and like medieval times and shit, they talk about like the lords and the ladies, right? The whole lord thing came from fluff lord. Fluff lord. Well, fluff lord is the bread lord or the grain lord. What actually gave the lord power was they had power over the land and they had control of the grain. Some of the first currencies we ever had were grain bills. A piece of paper that said, if you take this piece of paper anytime in the future and you go to the, you know, the distribution center, you will be able to get 20 pounds of, or 20 kilos or 20 baskets full of grain. It was how they created the first monetary systems that were used to control people. And so, what started out is a noble endeavor to make sure that we didn't starve ourselves to death by having these alternative sources of food when maybe hunting wasn't as good or so that we could bring more people together for longer periods of time. Very quickly, the people in power sorted out the fact that this was a means of control, a mechanism of control, and that's what it's become. Uh, One more question from John. John says, when and how do you start your sweet potatoes for slips uh, for your zone 8A? I'm in 8B. Um, I have some indoor hydro stuff and just toward the end of the year, I just cut some tips off my outdoor plants and stick them in there, and I just let them grow like crazy. In my, I don't really start them anymore. I don't do that. I haven't actually taken a potato and you know put it in water and then slipped it off and then rooted it forever. I have you know some little ebb and flow beds that are part of my indoor hydro system in the garage, and I just stick tips. And then when I get close to planting, I cut a bunch of them. And I, I, I put them in. And then uh, G says, so no to shiitake mushrooms. Um, fungus is a different world. Fungus is a different world. I believe that fungi exist in many ways to be used as medicines by humans. And I believe that we co-evolve for that purpose. And I also have heard all of this stuff about, like, if you don't cook a shiitake mushroom, it'll kill you. I don't know where that comes from. I've never... Had a problem eating uh, just about any mushroom raw, uh, though I do think shiitakes are better cooked. Uh, I also don't think we should be living on shiitake mushrooms. I, I look at a lot of things that I think can be very good for us, the way that I look at cannabis now. Now, when I was like a twenty-something and I was in my party stage, especially before I became a married man and all. Like, I was all about going out and getting, you know, getting drunk, getting stoned, or just sitting around with a bunch of people and staring at your hand and and talking nonsense and all and being as stoned as possible as you can. Um, And then that that whole world left me when I became a father and had to be more responsible. Um, And over the years, you know, I've come across people like uh, who's the guy with, he's done quite a few interviews with Joe Rogan, Graham Graham Hancock. Um, And, uh, than the mushroom guys, Paul Stamets. And both of them have a very similar philosophy coming from different places. Uh, uh, Graham more from the world of like being a heavy cannabis user in the past and not really using it at all anymore and now relying more on things like uh, ayahuasca and DMT and stuff like that. And then Paul more of the, uh, the mushroom world, the magic mushroom world. But they, they seem to have a common opinion, even if it's outside of their space, about all of these types of um, things that we can use to alter our consciousness and that we should not be doing it for recreational purposes. Now, neither one of them are advocating that we remove your right to do so if you choose to, just as a, as a matter of, like, best practices, right? That it would be better if we were going to use something that was mind-expanding, whether it be something like a mushroom or a cannabis or something like that, in moderation and occasionally, and done so with some level of contemplation and understanding that it actually can unlock things for us, that we can become better people. Through its use. When I look at things like mushrooms and, and not the magical kind, things like shiitake's or whatever, and as far as consuming them, and a lot of herbs fit in this realm as well, I don't think we should be building a diet based on these things. I think too much of anything can become a poison or a toxin. And I think that it's more along the lines of these things can actually, that which is medicine becomes a, a, a poison when overdosed. So there's no doubt, for instance, that if you have a sore back or a headache or something, assuming it's not something far more chronic than just a little bit of stress or inflammation, taking something like an aspirin will reduce the pain. It won't cure the problem, but it will reduce the pain. But if, if, if you eat a bottle of aspirin, you will experience one of the most painful hemorrhagic deaths a human being can go through. It's one of the, the most painful ways there could possibly be to kill yourself would be an aspirin overdose. So what's the difference between the medicine and the poison? Is the dosage. So I think a lot of things that we use, um, a lot of things that maybe make sense to grow uh, and to consume, uh, makes sense. You, and it's, it's about how much, how often, their timing and their form. For instance, someone here says, and sweet potato greens can be eaten. I believe absolutely they can, and that's the number one reason I grow sweet potatoes. I think I harvested three sweet potato tubers last year. just that's the other thing I do. I leave them in the ground. If it doesn't freeze too bad, they come back on their own. Um, I grow these great big purple um, uh, Japanese sweet potatoes. And they grow a beautiful green. And I, I, I might harvest, like I said, you know, four or six big tubers a year. And um, they're delicious fried. We do a twice fry on them. But I look at that like a dessert. So the way that somebody might look at like a piece of chocolate cake... I look at something like a sweet potato tuber. Is it's 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 something that we we eat maybe a couple times a year, maybe at the end of the season, maybe you know about a month from now. Maybe I'll pull one of them out that's in storage right now and and make some fries with some duck breast or something like that. And in the middle of winter to kind of celebrate the fact that we're heading back to spring or something. It's not something that I'm going to make um, a living on. Um, however, the greens are a totally different thing. The greens are delicious, and I grow the greens as much for me as I do for the birds, right? So um, I will take uh, an ebb and flow bed in one of my systems, and I'll put a couple uh, uh, sprigs in there, and it'll take off. And then about once every three weeks, I'll be able to harvest, like, a wheelbarrow full of greens, and it'll grow straight back. And I'll take that, and I'll feed my ducks with that. And, you know, I'll never eat enough sweet potato greens to, to ever need to grow more than we grow. It's, it's an insane uh, amount of greens they produce. And I also grow things like water spinach that are in the same family, um, sweet potatoes, uh, water spinach. I'm trying to think of the other stuff. They're, they're basically in the morning glory family, and some morning glories are really, really toxic, but uh, a lot of them are, are not. And, I, again, I think this is, again, when I talk about dietary things and things maybe you should and shouldn't eat, I don't mean you should never eat them. I mean that you shouldn't base your, your daily caloric needs from them. If you want to eat a roasted of corn someday, go ahead. It's good. I admit it. It tastes great. You get almost no nutritional value from corn, by the way. Um, there, the, unless you unless you use the process of nixtamalization with corn uh, when, when certain types of like corn flour and things like that are made, you get almost no nutritional benefit from corn. And that's why, you know, people make jokes about the toilet after you eat a couple cobs of corn, but there's, there's a reason it comes out that way, because your body can't digest it. it. It can't really, even what is there, it can't extract. So we don't need to be relying on things that are generally toxic at higher dosages for our, for our caloric needs. That's where everything goes south. And with that, I'm going to wrap up today, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I appreciate it. Again, if you watch me on uh, Facebook live feed or Twitter live feed, please share it so that maybe eventually—not uh, today—but some of the other topics I cover, maybe eventually they'll go ahead and ban me instead of shadow banning me. It's—it's—it's kind of funny. Um, you know, I'm looking here, and I think right now we have like two people watching the Facebook feed. Uh, long before when I before I left Facebook, and I have just as many followers there now as I always have. Uh, I would do a live feed on Facebook and I'd have like 300. So now I have two. So that, that, that says something about algorithms and how they control the flow of information. But, guys, I appreciate you being with me today. Again, the uh, audio version will be out on Spotify and on iTunes and or Apple Podcasts and Pocket Cast and all that about an hour from now. And all the resources I mentioned will be available for you uh, there. There is a link in the video notes. With that wrapped up, let me remind you guys if you like the show and the work that we do, you can always support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. The item of the day today that I have for you is uh, made by a company called Avid Armor. And I I brought these to you early last, or mid last year. And they are just vacuum sealer bags. And I went on a quest last year to find a better solution. I use a a commercial uh, uh, vacuum sealer made by Cabela's. And it's pretty old, and it, it even has a problem, but overall it still works, and I'm not willing to get rid of it yet. But I have had a lot of bags over the years fail on me, and I've, I've gone two ways. I bought really cheap bags and said if they're going to fail, who cares? And I bought really expensive bags, and then I still get failures. When I found Avid Armor, I found bags that were a lot less expensive than the expensive ones, a little bit more expensive than the super cheap ones, but almost never fail. They're fantastic, and the reason you ain't heard about them in a couple months, they've been out of stock. And supply shortages, et cetera. We hit on that today quite a bit. They've been out of stock, and today I checked, and almost all of the different options were in stock. So these are—they don't go bad, they don't wear out, they don't have an expiration date. Get them all you can and preserve that food, because there's nothing worse than investing in either growing or buying high-quality food, putting it in the freezer, taking it out a few weeks, months later, and it's ruined and freezer burnt and doesn't taste good. Uh, vacuum sealing is the way to go, but you want the right bags. I believe these are the right bags. You can get 200 quart size bags. Those are fairly large bags for $27. Bucks. Uh, I also give you in the write-up my, my number one way to make sure things don't fail on you. Now, I am thinking about eventually getting a chamber vacuum uh, machine, which will negate this, and it's, it works totally different. We won't get into that today. Um, but as long as I'm still using my commercial uh, vacuum sealer the number one reason you get failures other than shitty bags is that liquid gets up into the seal, and that causes the seal to fail. Well, liquid doesn't flow when it's frozen. So what I generally do, I put the things that I'm going to vacuum seal into my bag, arrange them kind of laid out the way that I would like them to lay, and I put them in the freezer. And I set up a timer so I don't forget for about an hour and a half, two hours. And they'll be mostly frozen at that point. I take them out, I turn the machine on, And they freeze perfectly every time. The other thing is pointy, sharp things. you got to be careful when that happens. And some things are definitely worth double sealing. Anyway, with that, just a quick reminder, if you do your online shopping, starting at tspaz.com, whether it's something I've reviewed or not, as long as you start there, you'll help me out no matter what you buy. With that, let's go ahead and uh, thank everybody for tuning in today and uh, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast helping you figure out how to live that better life times get tough or even if they don't
0: You pull yourself up they keep bringing you down are they gonna bail you out or just run you around they said you should have a house the American way